You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, M.D., Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Wit, Pablo, Nikki, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I have, officially at this point, bitten off more than I can chew. The problem here is that I love the story of the Salem Witch Trials. I could spend ages telling it. But we don't have that luxury around here. Today, as I release this episode, is Halloween. And I'd like to finish the tale of the Salem Witch Trials on Halloween. So we're going to jump right in, and finish this story one way or another. This is episode 187, That Dark, Mysterious Season. Last time we brushed right by April 1692, but there are a couple of important events I'd like to mention. Rebecca Nurse, that old infirm woman that I talked about last time, after her trial she was defended by her family and some of the most prominent figures in the Salem Village community. 39 upstanding church members signed a petition in her defense. Her husband and her sons and her grandsons all went door to door to organize support for her. It was a significant outpouring. Nonetheless, she was sent to jail, condemned of witchcraft if not yet convicted. The greatest insult Nurse suffered came from the inspectors that detailed her physical state. Nurse had given birth a mind-boggling eight times in rural New England in the 1600s. That's not unheard of, but it's not common either. It may have contributed, the fact that she had so many successful pregnancies may have contributed to that sense of bitterness against her in the village. The magistrates ordered her searched for a witch's mark. They didn't find one, but the inspectors noted her breasts. They were... Saggy. Which, I mean, she's an old woman. She had eight children in her life. The midwives there were incensed that this was even an issue. But the court recorded that her breasts had been full and plump a few days prior. Clearly, in the eyes of the court, she had suckled an imp while imprisoned. 
John Hawthorne and John Corwin had this judicial quandary. They had a wealth of what they called spectral evidence. That means the stories that a bunch of teenage girls were telling them that nobody but those witnesses could verify. But they lacked physical evidence. Because, you know, of course they did. Witches aren't real. So the justices latched onto any crumb of evidence they came across. A mole, a, a wart, a flea bite, saggy breasts. Sometimes they would come across nefarious potions, which were medicines. Anything they could find. It was a travesty. Bridget Bishop was the next woman to stand trial. Now, we're going to get to her shortly, but I want to note a few things about her hearing before Hawthorne and Corwin. Bridget Bishop was the first person we've talked about that was not from Salem Village. She was from Salem Town. None of the primary accusers in the trial, you know, Anne Putnam, Abigail Williams, Betty Paris, Mercy Lewis, none of them recognized her. This presented a fairly significant problem. They were all struck dumb by her witchcraft there in court, but they just couldn't name her. Mary Walcott, though, who was from Salem Town, she saved them. She knew who Bishop was. The thing is, Bishop was accused primarily by men. She was that spectral succubus we mentioned last time, the woman known to enter the bedrooms of unsuspecting men and choke them, pinch them, and force them to have sex with her. She lived a scandalous life, Bridget Bishop. Men tended to remember her. They remembered her clothing especially, her bright coats and her bright petticoats. They recalled her love of drink and song and gaming. Bridget Bishop is... Well, I like her. A lot of the men in town liked her too, but when these accusations of witchcraft came forward, her raucous past condemned her. Even more was her late husband... Thomas Oliver. The judges called Bridget Bishop Bridget Oliver throughout the hearing. She'd been on trial for witchcraft before, after the death of her second husband, Thomas Oliver. She was acquitted in that trial, but the magistrates used her dead husband's name in an attempt to remind everyone of that prior allegation, and it seems to have worked. Beyond that, though, were accusations of theft from years past and Recriminations that her home was known to host parties where people would stay up late and drink cider and play board games and even play music. I'm just saying, if I lived back then, I would probably have been hanging out with Bridget Bishop, and they probably would have killed me for it. The only physical evidence they had on her was a hole in the sleeve of her coat. Imagine this. Bridget Bishop is standing there, in chains, with a little tear at the end of her sleeve near the wrist. One of the girls claimed that, in spectral form, Bridget Bishop had grabbed her, but the girl fought back. She fought her way free, and in the process, tore Bridget Bishop's coat. There was, indeed, a tear in the coat, as Justice Hawthorne saw when he demanded to see. But anyone in the front row of the court, as all of these girls were, could have seen that. Hawthorne, though, was outraged. He was scandalized. It's an open and shut case, obviously. Clearly, she's a witch. Just look at her torn coat. The evidence is all there. Throw her in jail, right? And it's all like that all throughout these trials. Infuriating. I do want to mention two cases that happened that April. Mary Warren, the maid in the Proctor household, finally came forward with an accusation against her employers. 
She pinned it to the door of the meeting house so everyone could see it. In the wake of that, Mary Walcott and Abigail Williams came forward with their own claims against John and Elizabeth Proctor, or Betty Proctor. You have to be specific with Proctor's wives. He had three, and two of them were named Elizabeth. John Proctor, though, had a total of 18 children in his life. By 1692, they weren't all still alive, and several of them were grown and married, but nine of them still lived at home. Two of those, and one of his adult sons, would follow John and Betty Proctor to jail as witches. That's a whole drama in and of itself. The subject, by and large, of the crucible, and it's a fantastic story, but we're not going to get into it here. I do, though, want to mention Giles Corey, or Giles Corey, Martha Corey's wife. He threw his wife under the bus when she was on trial, but that did not save him from an accusation of his own. For some reason, and I'm sure it's coincidence, we see these cases in which husbands and wives, both of whom are on the deed to a parcel of land that usually is attached to Putnam land, both get accused of witchcraft. I'm sure that has nothing to do with land rights in Massachusetts at the time. But the real coup here is that John Proctor and Giles Corey were the first two men accused of witchcraft in Salem Village. More would follow a not insignificant number of them, but in the big picture what that did was open the door for George Burroughs to be accused. That dark wizard who had abused his wives and daughters, perhaps killed some of them, and assaulted Mercy Lewis in her youth. Burroughs was arrested on the 4th of May, but his trial was going to have to wait. He was put up at a local inn there in Salem, not Ingersoll's ordinary. Nathaniel Ingersoll didn't much like George Burroughs, nor did Thomas Putnam for that matter. After all, he'd been a house guest at Putnam's and made a menace of himself and still owed Thomas Putnam a lot of money. And he was questioned not at the meeting house in front of a large group of people, but in private, in comfort, at his inn. He wasn't worried, though, at all. He still had allies, friends even, in town. He was confident in his acquittal. See, ministers just don't go to jail for witchcraft. It had never happened before in Massachusetts. And it looked very much like he had allies in high places. When word reached Boston that the court in Salem had arrested a minister of all things, the government had to get involved. Honestly, they had to get involved anyway. If you're going to convict anyone of a high crime or a capital crime, they had to convene a court of Oyer and Terminer. We would consider it kind of like a grand jury. But Burroughs' arrests sped up their plans. Nine men were appointed to that court of Oyer and Terminer. Almost all of them were Harvard-educated, well-connected men. Stacy Schiff writes in The Witches, quote, Well-read, widely traveled, they were men of integrity, familiar with the workings of the court. Many had handed down unpopular opinions. Several had witnessed trials in London. They lived in the finest brick mansions and gabled homes in their respective towns. End quote. I'm about to defame these men of integrity, Men, all of whom, are ancestors to presidents or Supreme Court justices or captains of industry all throughout American history, these were important people. Despite that, though, despite what happened here in 1692, some of them were honorable people. 
After the trials, a few of them would write and publish formal apologies. They would fight in court and in the governor's office to fix what had been broken during the trials. A few were even abolitionists in a time when that was uncommon. They weren't evil men, but they were caught up in the terror that gripped Massachusetts. All nine were well-connected, as you might expect. What you might not expect is how closely connected they were to each other. The club of powerful men in Massachusetts was tiny. The Bible Commonwealth, as the Massachusetts Bay Colony was known, was a theocracy. Nobody denies that fact. What there is some debate over is exactly what kind of theocracy it was. Was it a theocratic republic? Maybe they certainly had some of the trappings of a republic. They held elections and had something resembling a representative council. It's been said that the people of Massachusetts founded a republic while no one was looking. But it wasn't what we, even in our flawed modern republics, would consider a representative republic. I think, more accurately, it would be described as a theocratic oligarchy, with a veneer of republicanism, maybe. That clique of ministers and magistrates and counselors, they were all related, distantly, at least. At times, you would find them eating together and praying together and sleeping together, literally and figuratively. They were connected by a web of marriages, so they were sleeping together in that sense, but they often literally slept in the same bed, sometimes in the same bed as political rivals. You have to remember that people in North America at the time usually slept in large communal beds, kind of like the grandparents in Willy Wonka. When families congregated on feast days, really fast days were more common in the Puritan world, but when they congregated, they would share beds. You would find people running against each other for a certain office, sharing a bed, their wives there as well. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that the phrase, politics makes for strange bedfellows, it's adapted from a Shakespeare line, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that it comes from New England. Now, putting this court together was the very first order of business for the brand new governor of Massachusetts, William Phipps. Phipps was more concerned with the war, of course, and pirates like Thomas II and William Kidd and even Henry Every, so he put his deputy governor, William Stoughton, in charge of the court. We've met William Stoughton before a couple of times, back when William Phipps was a treasure hunter and when Thomas Pound roved the seas. Stoughton was to serve as the chief justice, and he was an ardent prosecutor. I'm not going to burden you with all eight other names on the court, but I do want to highlight a few. We already know John Hawthorne, who had a place on that court. But I want to note Samuel Seawall, who we've met before, and a man named Nathaniel Stoltenstall. The high court set up shop initially in Salem Town's meeting house. It was much larger and had better accommodations than that of Salem Village. There were more people accused than they had expected. They ordered the Boston jail to prepare for prisoners as well. See, we've only mentioned, you know, half a dozen people here, but by the time this court was convened, over 100 people had been imprisoned for witchcraft, and they were all still waiting in jail. The burden was lifted a bit because people kept dying while in jail. Sarah Osborne 
was the first such case, the first person in the witch trials to die in captivity. She, like nearly everybody else in prison, was forced to live and sleep and eat and relieve herself in about six inches of standing water, at least after it rained. This was the norm for these prisoners. And here I'd like you to think of Dorothy Good. She was five years old, in a cell across the hall from her mother, living in those same deplorable conditions. I'd like you to think about that kindergarten-age child who had to watch her sister, an infant who may have been born in jail, starve to death because her mother was so ill-nourished that she couldn't even make milk. At which point I would mention that the only reason Sarah Good was so ill-nourished was because of her lack of ability to pay. You had to pay for food in New England jails, and if you had the money, oh, you could eat well. One man in Boston had enough capital on hand to live in the Boston jailer's home. He had a nice bed and a warm fire. He shared meals with his family. But if you were a beggar woman with an infant and a five-year-old in tow, they threw a handful of grain into your cell filled with stagnant water and told you to make do. Even if, in Sarah Good's case, you were nursing an infant girl of all things named Mercy. You know how I said those justices weren't evil? Well, I take that back. That they allowed this to continue is an abomination. The problem here, you know, aside from the sinful and frankly unchristian attitude of the men in charge, is that these jails in Massachusetts were not designed for a long-term stay. The idea is you would throw, say, a pirate in there who would stay for about a week after his arrest before he was sent to the gallows. But these poor souls, the people accused of witchcraft here in 1692, they had been imprisoned so far for two months, with no relief in sight. You'd think that the high court would get on that immediately, but no, first, they had to ask for divine counsel. Separately, they went to their respective ministers, as they all went to different churches, but they also all went to Cotton Mather. He advised that they judge carefully, soberly, that they look for evidence before condemning any of these witches, that they, you know, keep their heads screwed on straight. Nevertheless, he would say, and Stacy Schiff does an excellent job of calling out his sweeping neverthelesses several times, nevertheless, Mather reminded them that Satan himself walked Massachusetts. Judgment Day loomed on the horizon. These judges were the last line of defense between the forces of hell and the salvation of the very last pious state on earth. The fate, nay the doom, of all mankind was in the hands of these nine men. He also told them that spectral evidence was legitimate and admissible. There are a lot of trials to come here, and we don't have time to talk about them in any real depth. I mean, even most books on the subject that devote way more space to this story than we will usually only focus on five or six particularly notorious witch trials. We have even further pressure, as it is Halloween, and there are those aforementioned pirates raising their own brand of hell out in the Atlantic as this is going on. So we're going to be brief. 
The first accused witch to stand trial before the high court was a woman who, one of the accusers had claimed, was to be the queen of hell and who also had enough of a rap sheet to make it an easy trial. Bridget Bishop. She was forced to undergo a humiliating physical examination, much like Rebecca Nurse had. Everyone had to undergo this, although here, at these official high court trials, they were under the supervision of a male surgeon. Her body was examined, and they poked her with pins. They stabbed her to see if she would bleed. If she failed to, she was a witch. If she had a mole or a wart or a flea bite or a pimple, which... If she had a third nipple, the witch's teat, definitely a witch. The midwives that examined Bridget Bishop found no evidence that her body differed in any significant way from their own. The surgeon, dissatisfied with this assessment, had his own look. And what he found, along with two other women a few days later, was, quote, a preternatural excrescence of flesh between the pudinum and anus. End quote. I'll leave you to figure out what that means. Invasive, absolutely humiliating, you betcha. Illegal? Not in Massachusetts. This was only the beginning of the indignities that Bridget Bishop would suffer for the next three days. The proceedings opened as all proceedings would. A clerk asked the traditional question. Culprit, how will you be tried? The accused, Bishop in this case, was expected to answer, and she did, by God and my country. Unfortunately, the extensive and presumably accurate court documents taken all throughout these trials have been lost to history. They were probably lost during the American Revolution in a riot in Boston. But that means we only have second-hand accounts of what was to follow. Due to that, we don't know, for example, exactly which of the girls made which accusations against a which, like Bridget Bishop. But we do know the thrust of their accusations, and it appears that, since Bridget Bishop's preliminary hearing back in April, their stories had really come together. Bridget Bishop, in spectral form, entranced them, and offered these girls all that their hearts desired. Which, I would like to take a second to look at. Stacy Schiff makes an excellent observation. She writes, quote, from those things the devil promised, we can glimpse what the 17th century girl dreamed of. Splendid finery, travel abroad, fashion books, leisure, gold, a husband, help with the housework. Her longings differed little from any other orphaned, semi-adolescent farm girl stalled in a bleak, storm-prone landscape. Insofar as they dared to dream, these girls dreamed at the ashen end of a New England winter, of journeys to exotic realms and in supersaturated color. Salem testimony explodes with invigorating, over-the-rainbow intensity. It is all bluebirds and canaries, yellow dogs, red rats, red meat, red bread, red books. Deprivation, however, had its limits. Even with the regular fasts, there was no hungering after or enticing with food. Rather, the girls appeared starved for color, expressionist splashes of which light up their testimonies, nearly conjuring ruby slippers. End quote. The girls, both those who were tempted by Satan and those who confessed to having given in to him, desired adventure and pretty clothes and warmer climates. And freedom, both a personal, mental freedom, 
and sexual freedom. Many of the girls and women in prison for witchcraft right now were there more because of sexual adventures than satanic tortures. However, in the Puritan mind, the former was just as evil as the latter. Take, for example, Bridget Bishop. When her attempts to seduce the girls with gifts failed, according to the accusers, Bridget Bishop beat them. Whether the accusers were whipped or choked or beaten with an iron rod, in each and every case, two girls were present for the assault. Which is handy, since Deuteronomy requires two witnesses of any crime to convict. Following the testimony of Abigail Williams and Betty Paris and Putnam and Mary Walcott, the men finally had their say. They all seemed to have a tale of theft or harsh words and curses or of sexual impropriety on the part of Bridget Bishop. Here, her past transgressions condemned her. Now, Bishop had no defense attorney. The concept didn't even exist in New England. In her initial hearing, she had at least been given the opportunity to explain herself, to defend herself. But here, at the High Court, she was merely ordered to answer for the charges. Her answers were found wanting for physical matters, and as the church had allowed in spectral evidence on the advice of Cotton Mather, Bridget Bishop could offer no defense. On 2nd June 1692, Bridget Bishop was found guilty of witchcraft, the first person so judged in 1692. She was condemned to hang by the neck until dead. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Nathaniel Stoltenstall was the lone voice of dissent in the trial. 
He was, quote, displeased with the handling of the bishop case and very much dissatisfied with the proceedings. He was the only judge there to object in any form to anything that went on, and to his immense credit, following what he saw in her case, he resigned the court in protest. Following her conviction, the accusations only picked up speed in Salem Village. They ranged far beyond the village, in fact, to towns and hamlets all across the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The witch trials were blooming into a full-blown regional crisis. Every magistrate in Massachusetts was hearing preliminary cases now. The justices were hearing cases in both Salem Town and in Boston. The jails were filling up at an alarming rate, instigating their own crisis. Over the next few weeks, the number of accused in Massachusetts would more than double to over 200 people. Whole families were charged and imprisoned. Units of the Massachusetts militia, serving as witchfinders, ranged far and wide, hunting down every witch they could find. It's here that the analogies to the Red Scare and the Holocaust become evident and obvious. Whole families fled to the woods or to neighboring colonies. Hampshire, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, New York, anywhere that they could hide. Many more were hiding in the houses of those who had not yet been accused. There was, in 1692, a fair number of teenage girls who were busy fighting their own hormones and their growing sense of sexuality and their social pressures, all the while hiding out in an attic. It's a familiar tale. Of course, Puritan girls didn't keep diaries. Many young women fled their society entirely to Indian camps out in the countryside. Some of those married and settled down. They had kids. They finally got at least a taste of the freedom that they desired. After all of this was over, much later on, some of those women would occasionally be found by white men. Occasionally those men tried to take them back to, you know, to rescue them. But of course they didn't want to go. People died in the fighting that followed those encounters on more than one occasion. But this entire era was a terror for the people of New England, the kind of terror that only an overreaching, ideologically radical, and morally bankrupt government can induce. And then, of course, there were the unseen consequences, something that we know about but nobody at the time saw coming. All of this, the trials and the infrastructure required there, the militia units roaming the countryside, and the hundreds of people in jail, well, it was sucking up all of the time and the labor of the people of New England. This was during the spring and summer in an agricultural society. The planting and tending crops and caring for animals and fishing and everything they needed to do to survive wasn't getting done, at least not enough of it. After the trials were over, come winter, the harvest was bleak. There was not enough corn or peas or beans to feed everyone. Beyond that, their agricultural output economically was wanting. Back in Boston, eight days after she had been found guilty on the 10th of June, Bridget Bishop was collected by George Corwin, John Corwin's nephew. She was loaded into an open two-wheeled cart, taken down St. Peter Street from the Boston jail to Essex Street. There she headed west all the way through the center of town and finally turned north along Boston Road. In normal times, it was a journey of 15 minutes, maybe, but here it was perhaps the longest journey of Bridget Bishop's life. More than 5,000 people had turned out into the streets of Boston, 
as many as half of them possibly not from Boston. They were there hoping to see what a real witch looked like. And after two months in prison, she looked the part. Her clothes were in rags. She was emaciated. She had dark circles under her eyes. But to her credit, reportedly, Bridget Bishop stood straight. Even under the barrage of insults and curses and, yes, a barrage of refuse and rotten food. The procession led her, finally, to Gallows Hill. We don't know who her executioner was. They didn't tend to write that kind of thing down, but we do know the procedure. Her skirts were tied at the ankle. Her wrists were bound before her. They had her climb a ladder, and there Bishop waited. The presiding minister recited a prayer, and he gave a long, boring, blovating speech, and then finally he read Bridget Bishop's execution warrant. He asked her, here at the end, to confess and perhaps to save her soul. But Bridget Bishop didn't. In her very last moments, she declared her innocence to everyone attended. So they covered her head and kicked the ladder out from under her. The crowd should have been ecstatic, and a few were, yeah, but the clergy really wanted that confession. They didn't get it and the front rows were not as excited as one might expect. They were given over to people from Salem Village. The girls were there, naturally, as were a number of prominent men, Thomas Putnam, Minister Paris. In that first couple of rows, accusers stood cheek and jowl with those that they had accused. Mary Warren was there, but so was John Proctor and his wife Betty. The message here was clear. If you confess your crimes... You can avoid this fate. In the days that followed Bridget Bishop's execution, the High Court heard five more cases. Sarah Good, the first woman to be accused in Salem Village, came first. She was found guilty. Next came Rebecca Nurse. She was found guilty, too. Following that, in order, were Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wilds. All three, guilty. In fact, everyone who stood before this court was found guilty, if they didn't confess first. This is the only witch trial in all of history that we know of with a 100% conviction rate. It's the only trial in Massachusetts history with a large number of defendants to have a 100% conviction rate. This whole process took a long time, over a month, in fact. But the trials, for those of us who know how they tended to go, were becoming a bit routine. They kept order better in the high court, and they were efficient in their convictions. On the 19th of July, Sarah Good, Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, and Sarah Wilds were loaded up into an open cart. They had four wheels this time, and they were taken, as well, to Gallows Hill. The crowd was even larger. Some have suggested as many as 10,000. People had time to travel to Boston by this point. Innkeepers, tavern owners, prostitutes, merchants, they were all making a killing from this extended carnival atmosphere there in town. But those five women were executed in a very similar fashion to Bridget Bishop. However, right here I'd like to take a moment to think of five-year-old Dorothy Good. After months of living in squalor amid rats and stagnant water, after watching her baby sister starve to death in her mother's arms... 
Dorothy Good had to watch as a group of men in black coats dragged her mother off to die. And then they came for her, so that she could stand in the crowd and watch as they tied a rope around her mom's neck and strangled her to death. Following this second round of executions, the trial of George Burroughs was to take place. Now, we've discussed in some detail already the accusations against him, so we don't need to go into his proceedings, but I do want to posit a question about George Burroughs. He was not guilty of witchcraft. Nobody was. Witchcraft isn't real. But he was guilty of the mental and physical abuse of the women in his household. He was possibly guilty of sexual abuse of a 13-year-old, Mercy Lewis. And he was even maybe guilty of the murder of two of his wives and two of his daughters. George Burroughs deserved to hang. Depending on your sense of justice, and what that word means, maybe he deserved to suffer in the horrors of a Massachusetts jail. But should he have? In this case, I mean, nearly all of the accused were guilty of crimes that we in the modern world wouldn't call crimes at all, you know, gambling and drinking and premarital sex, or perhaps owning property that touched on the Putnam's land. Those people did not deserve to die. They didn't deserve to suffer in that Massachusetts jail, but George Burroughs did. However, even despite his many, many crimes, he would not have in the justice system of the time. The only recourse that his dead and abused wives and daughters had, the only justice that Mercy Lewis would ever find was in accusing him of wizardry. I don't know if that's right. Is it right for a guilty person to hang for a crime that they did not commit? I mean, legally, no, it's not, but is it morally right? I don't know. I will say, though, at the very least, I understand. In that vein, we can point to the reasons behind many of those accused of witchcraft being accused. Stacy Schiff points out that Thomas Putnam's feet stick out from behind the curtain far too often, and they did. Two of the main accusers were members of his household, his daughter and his maid. Far too many of those accused, especially those with a high profile, owed him money or were engaged in a land dispute with him. We can't point to at least most of the personal disputes behind the scenes that informed those accusations of witchcraft. Who stole from who ten years ago? Who slept with whose wife and or husband? Who in Salem Village abused the person that accused them in a fashion that was unlikely to find justice in the legal system of New England? More often than not, we don't know. Now these trials seem like a grave injustice, and they are. But they may have served, in ways that we cannot see hundreds of years later, they may have served a valuable purpose. They may be offered a voice to the voiceless. After another month of trials, on the 19th of August, George Burroughs, John Proctor, and two more were hanged at Gallows Hill. John Proctor's wife, Betty Proctor, was not executed, though she had been condemned. She had received a reprieve on account of her pregnancy. In a foreshadow of what's to come for two of the most prominent women in the story of pirates and piracy, the possibility that Betty Proctor conceived that pregnancy while in jail with a guard and not her husband 
the possibility of that is not zero. Now, after every round of executions that occurred, the expectation was that everybody would calm down. The witchcraft trials were doing their job. They were saving humanity from the devil. But instead, they seemed to have the opposite effect. Things only got more and more rabid as the weeks went on. In September, the jails reached their breaking point. They had to speed up the process, or they were going to run out of room. In that month, 16 people were found guilty of witchcraft, including Martha Corey. All were sentenced to hang. Giles Corey, Martha's husband, when asked the traditional question, culprit, how will you be tried, he refused to answer. He should have said, by God in my country, but he did not. That, well, they didn't know how to proceed, it put a stop to the trial. In an attempt to correct this affront, the only such case in Massachusetts history, the court ordered him pressed. That's the torture in which they lay you down, put a board on top of you, and weigh that board down with rocks and bricks and sometimes people. Giles Corey did not relent. For hours he refused to give the expected answer. All he had to say was, by God and my country, but he didn't. Through labored breath and eventually blood gurgling from his lips, he declaimed his innocence for hours until he finally succumbed and died. Three days later, on the 22nd of August, Martha Corey, a straight-up gangster to the end, followed her husband into death, along with three more people. This round of executions, though, to the surprise of everyone in charge, turned out to be the last. Maybe it was watching Giles Corey, the only man in Massachusetts history to suffer that torture, watching him die the way he did may have shocked people. Maybe it was watching yet another elderly woman go to her fate, denying her guilt. Too many people were denying their guilt. Too many people were petitioning the government. And too many people in the crowd, and this is key, too many of those had begun to grow sympathetic toward the condemned. One of those who had grown sympathetic was none other than Cotton Mather's father, Increase Mather. He wrote a treatise condemning the use of spectral evidence, which set off a barrage of sparring editorials between he and his son arguing that point. But public opinion had turned in Increase Mather's favor. It was at this point that a number of other old, fat, prominent men who had thus far sat the trials out decided it was time to intervene. Men who had retired from ministerial duties years ago entered in to say that this was not how things should be done in Massachusetts. Many of those men had been supportive of the witch trials in private, but now they chose to come down on what they realized was the right side of history. The tide had turned. But there was not a mass release of prisoners. That took months on end. If you had the money, you could post bail, but that was prohibitively expensive for many imprisoned, especially since they had been in jail for so long. However, townsfolk came together to raise the funds to get all of the children released first, and then families came together to raise money to get as many people out as possible, and after months of raising funds, almost everyone had been released. One figure remained in prison. Throughout October and November and December, past Christmas, which did not exist in Puritan New England, 
through January, and finally into February. Tichuba was never able to buy her way to freedom. She was a slave. She had no money. And Minister Paris didn't want her back. She was a liability at this point. So he left her to rot in a suburb of hell, in six inches of standing water. He just left her there. Finally, some kind soul came to the rescue and bought her at a discount. She was, after all, potentially a witch. Tituba, without her husband, John Indian, walked out of the jail into another kind of chains and off the pages of history. No one was burned at the stake, as is a common misconception. They didn't do that in America. We can't say for certain how many people died in prison. It was at least five, including an infant named Mercy, and perhaps as many as ten or a dozen. Which is too many. It's all too many. None of this should have happened. But what followed... Well, look, everyone accused here in New England was a Puritan, which is kind of a surprise. They hated the Quakers, but they didn't accuse any Quakers of witchcraft. No Anglicans or Lutherans, no Baptists even. No Catholics were accused of witchcraft in the Salem Witch Trials. All of them were members of the church, most of them in good standing. But those who survived the trials, those who were released from prison, got out to find that in most cases, their property, while they had been in jail, had been confiscated by the government and sold off to the highest bidder. That left hundreds of people, almost 200 survivors, not to mention all of their family members. It left them homeless, without any kind of income, all of them former members of the Puritan church. Most of those who had been so abused lost their faith. Not necessarily their faith in God or Jesus Christ, but in the Puritan church, absolutely. Without a home or any form of income, they moved out of Massachusetts to New York or Providence, and there they often started attending Anglican services or Baptist services. How many hundreds of people, all of their children, generations in families, can leave a relatively small church in a relatively small part of the world, and that church survive? The Puritan church had been dealt their death blow. In a generation, they would be a vanishingly small remnant of what they had been in Massachusetts. In two generations, they were essentially gone. The sorts of repercussions that were being felt here in the wake of the Salem witch trials took decades to work out. They finally only ended after all of those who had been affected either left Massachusetts for good or died. The governor and the council would be inundated with calls for reparations for years to come. Those who had been involved, Minister Paris, for example, were pariahs in their community. But a few cases really do stand out in all of that morass. When she was finally released from prison, Dorothy Good was six years old. But while she did leave prison, it really never left her. She had been forced to live in a state that I don't think any of us could ever really imagine and I hope nobody ever has to experience ever again. She had watched her infant sister die because her mother could not produce the milk and finally watched her mother killed by the state. Dorothy Good went insane. 
she would live in an asylum for the rest of her life before finally taking that life. And what of those at the heart of this story? Betty Paris, Abigail Williams, Anne Putnam Jr., Elizabeth Hubbard, Mary Warren, Mary Walcott. They had been, for a brief flash of their life, at the center of everything, of major events, events that we're still talking about today. Stacy Schiff points out that, with the exception of a few characters like Joan of Arc and a couple of preteen monarchs, virgin girls of their age and ilk had never had the kind of power that these girls had. But after the trials were over, they were relegated back to where the Puritan world thought they belonged. The shadows of history. For some of the girls, we know nothing about what happened to them after the trials. They disappeared. We know that Betty Paris and Mary Walcott went on to marry. Relatively successful men, not ministers or governors, but merchants and shoemakers. They would raise their families far, far away from Salem Village. Mercy Lewis moved to Boston. There, she gave birth to an illegitimate son, after which she, too, was relegated into the shadows. Anne Putnam, Jr., though, kind of a key figure in the witch trials, something of a star. Well, she would never marry, an oddity in the Puritan world. When her parents, Thomas Putnam and Anne Putnam, Sr., died in 1699, she took over the farm. An even stranger sight indeed, an unmarried young woman owning a large parcel of land, the largest privately owned land in the region, and doing well with it. The Putnam farm prospered under her direction. Anne Putnam Jr. was responsible for more successful accusations than any other girl in Salem. Mary Warren actually made more, but hers were less successful. She was suspect after all. But those accusations seem to have haunted Anne Putnam, Jr. In 1706, she published a formal apology for everything that transpired back in 1692. All of the lives lost and lives dashed on the rocks, she apologized for it, genuinely. And the community, those who had been affected that were left in the Salem region, they accepted it. It seemed that in this one small way, the wound had begun to heal. Anne Putnam died ten years later, in 1716, at the age of 36. The last accuser in Salem was finally gone. For generations after that, Salem Village, which would eventually become known as Danvers, Massachusetts, they hid from their past. No one who lived through the witch trials in their petitions for redress or in any official communications or probably in most diaries, no one ever referred to them as the witch trials. They were instead known in many, many papers as that dark and mysterious season. Into the 20th century, well into the 20th century in fact, people who visited the region, interested in the witch trials, could expect to be chased away chased with recriminations that hundreds of years earlier would have seen those who did the chasing accused of witchcraft. Nathaniel Hawthorne, the author of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, was a distant descendant of John Hawthorne, the justice, a key figure in the trials. He changed the spelling of his name to distance himself from his ancestor. He even went so far as to 
attempt to rewrite history. He wrote a book, The House of the Seven Gables, that sanitized the story of the Salem Witch Trials. And today, thanks in large part to that work and The Devil in Massachusetts and The Crucible, Salem and Danvers, to a lesser extent, have embraced their past. Somewhat, at least, they've embraced a sanitized, commercialized version of their past. Their sports teams are the witches. Their police cars carry the emblem of a witch flying on a broomstick. They've had to cancel it this year, because, you know, thanks 2020, but usually every Halloween they hold an annual witch festival. The story of the Salem Witch Trials is unbelievable. And I really haven't even begun to do it justice here. If you want to know more, I really cannot recommend the source that I have relied upon more than any other here, The Witches by Stacey Schiff. I could not have done, I would not have done this if not for her amazing, colorful, 3D historical storytelling. In the end, I wanted to tell this story because I wanted to. It's a good story, but in the telling, I did find a link to the pirates of the era. In the colonial era, New England was not a nice place to live. Every account is filled with descriptions of long, gray, dreary days. When we hear about those girls' wants and desires, what the devil offered them, it looks like more than anything else they wanted something fresh and exciting and colorful. Somewhere they could visit with new people and new sights and experiences that they're deeply repressive and regimented lives would never offer them. Most of those girls, the accusers and the accused, and those who played no role at all in the Salem Witch Trials, most would never achieve those goals, something that every adolescent can understand. But on the other hand, there was a generation of young men in New England who, thanks to the war and a few very enterprising sea captains, they were about to do just that. Next time, the first of the most famous pirates of the round will jump off the pages of dusty history and into the greater cultural imagination of the world. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family, and everybody who has given us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show. That all makes this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, Thank you for listening.
Tonight.